welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. This episode is the first in a new series of study guides where we will metaphorically be saying goodbye to the United States and the Civil War for a bit and returning to Europe to cover the lives of Napoleon Bonaparte's very messy and very dramatic family. But wait, Amelia, I can hear you saying, why aren't we covering Napoleon Bonaparte himself? That is a fair question, given how influential Napoleon is in history. I feel like every day a new biography of the man is coming out after all. And here's my attempt at an answer. Number one, I'm just not that interested in Napoleon Bonaparte. He's one of those figures of history who's just never quite connected with me, and it's my podcast, so I can choose the subject matter. I know that's kind of an easy out, so let me try to give you something a little bit more substantial. Napoleon Bonaparte's story is so deeply tied into military history, and military history isn't quite what I do. I prefer the more fun, lighthearted, gossipy side of history, which isn't so much Napoleon's way of doing things. Also, to do someone like Napoleon Bonaparte true justice, I would either have to break his story into multiple episodes, or I'd have to release one giant two-and-a-half-hour episode, neither of which are really my thing. So I've decided I'm not going to do a Napoleon-centric episode. There are other podcasters who've released amazing Napoleon-centric content. If you want a good overview on him, As always, I would suggest Mike Duncan's Revolutions series, specifically his episodes on the French Revolution that cover Napoleon. And for now, you won't get Napoleon specifically, but you'll get to see how fucked up his family truly was, starting with his first wife, Josephine Bonaparte. In a history class, Josephine is always just Napoleon's first wife, who he scandalously divorced, but she has an awesome story in her own right. Her study guide has a brief time in prison, an oh-so-scandalous aunt, a possible ghost sighting, and a lot of roses. Let's begin. The woman who would one day be Josephine Bonaparte, Empress of France, was born June 23rd, 1763, on the French colony of Martinique in the West Indies. Her birth name was Marie-Joseph-Rose Tasha de la Pajaret. As always, apologies for my French accent. While I can read French decently, I can't speak it at all. And yes, while her birth name was Marie-Joseph-Rose, and while she went by Rose and Iayette, until she met Napoleon, I'm just going to refer to her as Josephine throughout the episode to keep things from getting confusing. Josephine was the eldest of her family's three daughters. Her parents were Joseph Tasher de la Pégeret and Rose Claire de Vergers de Sanois. Her father was a sugar plantation owner in Martinique who had once been a part of the court of Louis XVI. However, he had never quite managed to rise above the position of page boy within the French royal court, which was always a bit of a sticking point for him. 
even though he was a plantation owner and theoretically should have had a lot of money because he wasn't exactly paying his workers. Remember, we're still operating in a slave system. Joseph Tasha de la Pagere had a habit of, one, being extremely incompetent about everything, and two, being deeply, deeply in debt. But he was excellent at hiding his debt behind a veneer of opulence. The year after Josephine was born, her sister Catherine Desiree was born, and two years after that, her youngest sister Manette Francois was born. The same year that Manette was born, a massive hurricane hit Martinique and completely destroyed the family plantation. Suddenly, Josephine, her sisters, and her parents had to live in the plantation refinery, which was a massive downgrade to the life they had been living. In addition to no longer having a beautiful plantation to live in, the Tasher de la Pagere family is facing another issue. They have three daughters and no sons. In terms of inheritance, that's not exactly great. When Josephine's father dies, the money will go to some male cousin because under French law, women at the time couldn't inherit. But that's a problem for another time. Growing up, Josephine is going to be raised with her family in fairly good circumstances. Yes, they no longer have a plantation, but they're still wealthier than the vast majority of people on Martinique. For a brief time when she's 10, Josephine is going to be sent to a local island academy, but the whole education thing doesn't quite stick. And then she's going to have a change in her fortunes, thanks to Joseph's sister, Desiree. During the 1750s, Desiree had become the mistress of Martinique's colonial governor, this guy named Francois de Beauharnais. And in 1757, she took this relationship one step further by befriending Francois' wife. Desiree ends up marrying another guy, but she and Francois are still fucking on the side, and she's still friends with Francois's wife, and it's only a matter of time before Desiree's husband finds out about the affair and leaves her. Now that Desiree is single yet again, she moves to France to live with the Beauharnais family, including Francois's son, Alexandra. And then Francois's wife, dies and Desiree moves in and essentially becomes Alexandra's unofficial stepmother. The two are so close that Desiree decides that Alexandra is going to marry one of her nieces once everyone involved is old enough. The original plan is that Alexandra de Beauharnais is going to marry her middle niece, Catherine, Josephine's younger sister, because the age gap between Alexander and Catherine is slightly larger, which was more smiled upon by the French in the 18th century. But then Catherine goes and dies of tuberculosis and screws up everyone's plan. So now Desiree has to decide between her older niece, Josephine, and her younger niece, Manette. Manette is considered to be too young 
and delicate to marry Alexander, who already has a bit of a scandalous reputation and is aggressively in love with another woman who, of course, is married. So Desiree decides that the only option is to have Alexander marry Josephine. And in 1779, that is what happens. Josephine is sent from Martinique to France to marry her aunt's lover's son, Alexander de Beauharnais. In the letters from the Tasher de la Pagere family to Alexander, the family, including Desiree, really focuses on how beautiful Josephine's eyes are and spends less time discussing the fact that she is a girl from the outskirts of the French colonial empire who has no formal education. The trip over to France is not exactly easy. Throughout the boat ride, Josephine and her father keep having to deal with hurricanes, which is always fun, and on top of that, Britain and France are technically at war, so they have to keep freaking out over whether or not they will be captured and held hostage by the British. But eventually, in 1779, Josephine arrives in France in one piece. Hooray! Except, as it turns out, not hooray, because she and Alexander are not going to get along well. When Josephine first meets her future husband, he is 19 and she is 16. Josephine immediately decides that Alexander de Beauharnais is the handsomest man she has ever met. She's super into him, etc., etc., and he is aggressively not attracted to her. Alexander feels like Josephine is too plump, and she has a weird nose, and she's way too provincial to be married to him, and he's just not a fan of the relationship. As a result, they have a very fast and very small wedding, with basically no reception or celebration. As soon as the wedding ceremonies are done, Alexander leaves Paris to join his army regiment, and Josephine is sent to live with her aunt Desiree. Yeah, sure, her husband has basically just abandoned her, but Josephine does get to live in Paris, which for a 16-year-old who has just moved in from a colony, that's awesome. Paris is urban. There's a ton of stuff to do. It's like the Disneyland of the 1780s. Except that, once again, Alexander is kind of a jerk. He doesn't really let Josephine go out and take pardon Parisian culture because he feels like she's too embarrassing due to her lack of a formal education. And their relationship continues to go downhill. Josephine would like her husband to be faithful, thank you very much, whereas Alexander is not about that life. Remember, he did have that other woman he was in love with, even though she was married to a different man, and pretty soon, Alexander is keeping her as his mistress. Even though Alexander is aggressively cheating on his brand new wife, he has the audacity to accuse Josephine of being neglectful to him. What a guy. There's basically only one good thing that Alexander does for Josephine early on in their relationship. Basically, Alexander de Beauharnais is part of a group of young, rich, noble kids who believe in a little thing called equal rights. 
this group is going to include people who would eventually be really important in the French Revolution, like the Abbé Saïs, Maribot, and this guy named Talleyrand, all of whom are super cool and deserve their own episodes at some point, so I won't really be delving into them now. All of these young, vaguely liberal nobles are inspired by American ideology, the American Revolution, natural rights, etc., etc. And this little gang of nobles likes to hang out at salons where people talk about ethics, politics, and philosophy. Alexander does allow Josephine to attend salons with him, and it's at these salons that Josephine does slowly get a bit of an education. And it's at these salons that Josephine starts seeing women running the show, because the salons were organized by women. Yes, they couldn't fully partake in the discourse, but at least they got to run it behind the scenes. There is one other thing that Alexander gives to Josephine, and that is children. In 1781, Josephine gives birth to a son, Eugene, and as soon as Eugene is born, Alexander pieces out, goes on a tour of Italy, eventually comes back to his wife, moves her into a brand new house on the left bank of Paris, très fashionable, and then promptly leaves yet again. He decides that he needs actual military experience, which means going to Martinique to defend it against the British in the fall of 1783, which actually means that he's hanging out with his married mistress who has an estate in Martinique. In 1783, Josephine also gives birth to a daughter who she names Hortense. As soon as she gives birth to Hortense, Alexander comes back from Martinique and accuses her of being unfaithful, which Josephine most likely was not. She will get into crazy sexual escapades a little bit later in her life. However, because of this accusation, Josephine has to lie low in a convent for a little bit. However, the convent she goes to ends up being a pretty cool convent, all things considered. It has a lot of, like, young noble women hanging out there, and it's at this convent in 1784 that Josephine makes female friends for basically the first time in her life. Once she's in the convent, Josephine starts realizing that, yeah, the relationship between her and Alexander just isn't going to work out and the two start the process of legal separation. But that's not enough for Alexander, because in 1785, he tries to kidnap their son together, Eugene. This doesn't go anywhere. In fact, it ends up hurting Alexander. In the ensuing custody battle, Josephine ends up winning full custody of both the children, as well as an annual allowance from Alexander which is huge for a woman to get in 18th century France. So by 1785, Josephine is in a pretty good place. She's 23. She's still really pretty. She's legally single. Yeah, she has two kids, but her husband's paying her an annual allowance. She could use that money to hire nursemaids to watch the baby. Really, the only downside is her spending habits, which causes her to go into debt, but she has a lot of older male friends who are more than willing to pay off her debts for her. In the string of good luck 
and fun and being invited to all the hottest parties is going to continue for Josephine up to the start of the French Revolution. After all, a lot of her older male friends are part of the government. She's part of a clique of young women who are the hottest of hot things at the hottest of hot parties, etc., etc. Things are going so well that in 1790, her ex-husband gets appointed the president of the National Assembly. Things don't go much better than that. But... Wheels of fortune happen, and Josephine's fortunes start declining. In 1790, her only surviving sister, Manette, and her father both die in Martinique, and she's basically the only one of her family left. But things improve yet again, because in 1791, her ex, Alexander, becomes nationally famous when he's the one to announce that the king and queen had attempted to flee France, and he's one of the ones to bring them back to the city of Paris. Because of his role in recapturing Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, Alexander becomes a general in the French army, and through her connections to him, Josephine yet again, has a huge position in Parisian society. As always, things are going great for Josephine, even though things might not be going super well for the average man on the street, because by September 1792, we're starting to see some pretty large-scale mob killings of counter-revolutionaries in what's known as the September Massacres, in what kind of kicks off that whole reign of terror thing that you learned about way back in high school history class. When the reign of terror starts, things still are going pretty well for Josephine. After all, she's still part of the in-crowd through her ex-husband. She's having a ton of affairs with different revolutionary leaders. She's super charming in her own right. So even without her revolutionary bona fides, people probably would still love her. And then 1793 happens. Her ex-husband, Alexander, loses the French city of Mainz to the Prussian and Austrian army in a huge defeat. He gets blamed for this by revolutionary leaders, aka Robespierre and friends, gets accused of being a counter-revolutionary, and gets arrested in March 1794 for betraying France. Even though Josephine is no longer with Alexander, she's still connected enough to him that him being accused of being a counter-revolutionary is dangerous for her. In response to his arrest, Josephine tries to emphasize that she's a great revolutionary. After all, look at all of her revolutionary friends. Look at all the revolutionary leaders she's fucked. But anyone with any common sense knows how much money Josephine loves to throw around. They know that her family served in the royal court. Josephine likes to talk the revolutionary talk, but she doesn't exactly walk the revolutionary walk. So on April 21st, 1794, she gets arrested and sent to the prison of Lake Harms, which ironically enough is the same prison that her ex-husband is in, where he is having an affair with another female prisoner. 
Josephine looks around. She realizes she's stuck in prison. She most likely is going to get guillotined because, hey, that's what happens to everyone stuck at a revolutionary prison. And she decides, you know what? Why not have some fun while I can? So she promptly jumps into an affair with a revolutionary general, Lazar Hoosh. In July 1794, her ex-husband ends up getting executed for the whole betraying the revolution thing. And after his execution, things really aren't looking great for Josephine. After all, if Alexander is dead, why not just kill her as well? But five days after his execution, Josephine and the other prisoners in Lake Harm are all freed due to the coup of Thormidor, which pushed Robespierre out of power and basically ended the reign of terror. The coup of Thormidor was organized by this guy named Talien. And Josephine had a connection to Talien. He was having a relationship with one of her BFFs, Teresa Cabarrus. And as soon as he overthrows Robespierre, he helps get Josephine out of prison thanks to the whole Josephine and Teresa friendship. As soon as Josephine is free from prison, she jumps back into bed with Lazara Hoche and really cements her friendship with Teresa, who is now married to Talien. Because how else are you supposed to thank the woman who got her sugar daddy to free you from prison without becoming her BFF? Once the reign of terror is over, Josephine and Teresa are really going to become the center of post-revolutionary Parisian society. They're young, they're beautiful, and they look great in the hottest new fashion, which involves these very sheer, clingy, white dresses, which only skinny bitches can pull off. Also, now that she was out of prison, Josephine ditched Hoche and started an affair with Paul Barat, the head of the National Guards, who eventually became one of the directors in the French Directory, which was the new French government post-Reign of Terror. Paul Barat was very friendly with this young general named Napoleon, and eventually introduces Napoleon and Josephine to each other at a dinner party. The two vaguely hit it off, but Napoleon is way more interested in Josephine than Josephine was in Napoleon. She's like, yeah, he was interesting, but I have no desire to sleep with him. Soon after the two meet, Napoleon carries out 13 Van Marie, aka he put down an attempted royalist coup in Paris and shot to national prominence. We don't know exactly when Josephine and Napoleon started their famous affair because a lot of their letters to each other were heavily edited after her death by her children. However, it almost certainly started pretty soon after the whole 13 Von Marie incident. And as soon as the two start sleeping together, Napoleon decides that Josephine, who up until now had gone by Rose for the most part, was going to go by Josephine instead. Because for reasons that are still not quite clear to me, Napoleon loves to rename people things. We are going to see that throughout various episodes in the study guide series. 
As soon as the two start sleeping together, Napoleon really, 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 really wants to marry Josephine, but she's less interested in the whole putting a ring on it. After all, she still has a rotation of side pieces, including Paul Barat, except Paul Barat is steadily becoming closer and closer best friends with Josephine's ex-BFF, Teresa Tallien, and suddenly Josephine is like, oh no, maybe Teresa is trying to steal my position in Barat's heart and bed. And even though Napoleon isn't the most attractive man and has some temper issues as well as some fucked up views about women, he does have a lot of potential and a little bit of potential does go a long way in revolutionary France. Who cares that he's technically engaged to a woman named Desiree? Not Josephine and not Napoleon who breaks off his engagement to Desiree so that he can marry Josephine. The two end up getting married on March 9th, 1796. At the time of the wedding, Josephine is 33 years old. She lies on the marriage certificate to make it look like they're the same age because Josephine is a scandalous six years older than her now husband. They don't have a nice fancy honeymoon because two days after the wedding, Napoleon ditches Josephine to go to Italy to lead the French army there. As a result of the sudden promotion in military affairs, a lot of people think that Napoleon probably only got the Italian job through Paul Barat, aka Josephine's ex. Even though the two are separated by the Alps, Napoleon and Josephine manage to make their new marriage work through some extremely explicit letters. And as it turns out, Napoleon does miss Josephine. Almost as soon as he's in Italy, he starts asking for her to come visit him. Josephine, however, has other ideas. In May 1796, she starts an affair with a young army aide named Hippolyte Charles. As a fun side note, for quite a while, historians didn't actually believe that Hippolyte Charles existed, which is a thing, I guess. Charles is nine years younger than Josephine, he's really attractive, she's super into him, and yeah, he's distracting her from her brand new husband. As a result, Josephine tells Napoleon that yeah, she can't actually go hang out with him in Italy just yet because she's pregnant, and Napoleon freaks the fuck out. He threatens to kill himself unless Josephine gets her ass into Italy, and Paul Barat is like, my good bitch, we need you in Italy immediately. Napoleon is our greatest general, and we can't do anything to compromise him. Leave your young boy toy behind in Paris and go to Italy. So Josephine does. She and Napoleon unite and spend a third day of marriage together. The two then go down to Milan, which Josephine, like, does enjoy because, hey, 
who doesn't enjoy Milan. And while she's there, the local people keep giving her presents, which, once again, who doesn't enjoy a nice present once in a while? However, she does constantly talk about how much she misses, one, her children, and two, people at Charles, who is still in France. And things are going to get a little bit messier, because the next month, she finally gets the pleasure of meeting Napoleon's rather large family. And the Bonaparte family is not thrilled about the wedding between Napoleon and Josephine. Napoleon had not asked his mother or older brother for permission, which was not done, and the entire Bonaparte clan felt like Josephine was way too scandalous to marry Napoleon. As a result, Josephine and the Bonapartes are never going to get along. A few months later, Josephine's ex-flame, Lazar Hoosh, dies unexpectedly of pneumonia, which causes a whole other bunch of drama for Josephine, because when he died, he still had possession of some rather racy letters she had written him, and suddenly she needs to get her hands back on those letters, and it's a bit of drama, but at last she manages to get them back. Finally, in January 1798, Josephine manages to be back in Paris, thank you very much, while Napoleon goes off to do his whole conquering Egypt thing. Josephine decides to stay behind in Paris while her husband is off invading Egypt because she's sick and also just doesn't want to go to Egypt. However, while Napoleon is in Egypt, he finds out from one of his generals about the whole Josephine fucking another man less than two months into their marriage, and he is completely devastated and immediately wants to divorce Josephine. To make matters even more awkward, Josephine's son, Eugene, is in Egypt and is serving as like an aide to Napoleon, and Napoleon keeps forcing Eugene to like sit with him and talk about how sad he's feeling. In an attempt to get back at Josephine, Napoleon has an affair of his own with the daughter, with the wife of one of his generals, Pauline Ferres. And things aren't going super great for the whole Napoleon-Josephine relationship, especially when information about Josephine's affair gets leaked to the British press, who immediately publicizes it on an international stage, further humiliating Napoleon Bonaparte. As a result of all this, when Napoleon returns back to Paris in the fall of 1799, it looks like the two might actually get a divorce, but after a huge fight, they have an epic night of sex and manage to reconcile. They reconcile to the point that Napoleon buys Josephine her own estate, the Chateau de Malmaison, which is huge and beautiful, and is most famous for Josephine's rose gardens there. Josephine seriously becomes obsessed with roses to the extent that Great Britain will make an exception in their naval blockade of the entirety of France so that Josephine can get a new species of roses delivered to her. That is some commitment to a flower. In addition to 
the Rose Gardens, Josephine is also going to keep a literal zoo at her chateau. Once Josephine and Napoleon are reconciled and he bought her a new mansion, Napoleon continues improving his life. He overthrows the directory in the coup of Brumaire and becomes consul, a.k.a. dictator of France. Now that Napoleon is running the show in France, Josephine is basically the first lady of France, which is pretty cool given that she started off her life as the daughter of a not-so-prosperous planter on the outer edges of the French Empire. However, Napoleon really starts to restrict Josephine's freedom. He only lets her hang out with women of perfect reputations, which means that she can't see a lot of her old, slightly more scandalous revolutionary friends. He forces her to tell him how big her various clothing debts are, and Josephine is like, well, I can't tell you how big they are because it's over a million francs in debt, and that's a lot. So she lies and says that she only owes 600,000 francs in various unpaid bills, and he still completely melts down over that. And then, in March 1800, he forces Josephine and the family to move to the Tuileries Palace, which Josephine absolutely hates because she becomes convinced that her rooms are haunted by the ghost of Marie Antoinette, which is super creepy and not in a fun way. Even though Napoleon is being kind of a jerk to Josephine vis-a-vis ghosts and not letting her hang out with her old friends, by this point in the relationship, as far as we know, Napoleon isn't really having that many affairs and Josephine has also stopped sleeping around. If Napoleon is having affairs, none of them at this point produced children. So Napoleon and Josephine are still at that point in their relationship where they do genuinely think that they might have a child together, which would be huge because it would allow them to secure a succession and create a Bonaparte dynasty for France. Around this time, Josephine becomes obsessed with finding some sort of fertility cure. After all, she had had children before with her first husband. It's just that for whatever reason, she and Napoleon can't quite manage to make it work. So Napoleon and Josephine are hanging out, ruling France, having a lot of sex. But then, on Christmas Eve 1800, Josephine and her daughter Hortense are almost blown up by an assassin while going to meet Napoleon at the opera. The only reason why they survived this assassination attempt is because Josephine had gone home to change her shawl, so they're far away from the bomb when it explodes. Otherwise, they probably both would have died. This completely shakes both Josephine and Napoleon, which makes sense. Two years later, Napoleon forces Josephine's daughter, Hortense, to marry his youngest brother, Louis. Neither Josephine or Hortense is exactly thrilled by the match, but what Napoleon wants, he gets. Hortense's and Louis's wedding ends up getting blessed by the Pope, 
while Josephine and Napoleon's relationship never gets that level of papal approval, which is a massive slap in the face to Josephine. But Hortense and Louis do end up having a son, Napoleon Charles, who will become Napoleon's official heir. So it does work out somewhat okay. The year after this wedding, Napoleon starts having some serious affairs again. He starts sleeping with a variety of different actresses, and Josephine is well aware that Napoleon is cheating on her because she spies on him pretty openly. It's around 1803 that the relationship between the two of them starts to degrade a little bit. However, they keep up the public relationship pretty well. In public, Napoleon loves Josephine. He gives her multiple public tours, constantly is praising her fashion sense, etc., etc. And this public love for Josephine goes on full display in 1804 when Napoleon declares himself the Emperor of France. But why does Napoleon declare himself Emperor of France? In 1804, when Napoleon declares himself Emperor of France and names Josephine the Empress. Let's step back for a second and discuss why exactly Napoleon decided he named himself Emperor. After all, he had been running the country basically as a dictator for four years. Basically, in 1804, there was a failed assassination attempt on Napoleon, and he decided that he needed to shore up his position as the ruler of France, and the best way to do this was to name himself emperor and to have a very fancy coronation. Within this giant fancy coronation, Josephine's position caused a lot of drama. First of all, Napoleon couldn't quite determine whether or not he was going to name Josephine empress or just keep her as some sort of royal consort. Napoleon's sisters did not want Josephine to be empress because if that happened, she would be like the premier woman in France and they wouldn't even have official royal titles, even though they were the emperor's siblings, and that just isn't fair. They keep pushing and pushing and pushing Napoleon not to name Josephine empress, and this ends up causing a lot of tension between Napoleon and his siblings, which I'll talk about in later study guides. And then, right before the coronation, Napoleon and Josephine have one of their absolutely massive fights. Josephine goes to Isla Chapelle for one of her fertility treatments, and on the trip, she finds out that Napoleon had been sleeping with one of her favorite ladies-in-waiting, Elizabeth de Vaudy, and then literally catches him in bed with yet another woman and is furious. The fight between the two is so bad that Napoleon says he's not going to crown her empress. In fact, he's going to divorce her. So in the weeks leading up to the coronation, literally no one knows where the relationship between Napoleon and Josephine stands. But at the last second, he's like, yeah, we're staying together. And not only are we staying together, I'm going to make Josephine Bonaparte the Empress 
of France, which is a huge national scandal because a queen of France hadn't been crowned for literally hundreds of years and suddenly Napoleon waltzes in, makes his already once divorced wife the empress. Napoleon and Josephine's coronation ends up being December 2nd, 1804, and it's crazy elaborate. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the picture by David, you've heard the story of Napoleon snatching the crown out of the Pope's hand and crowning it himself, etc., etc. It's a big deal. As for Josephine's part, her train on her dress is so heavy that five people have to carry it so that she's able to walk down the aisle. And Napoleon's sisters do kind of get the last laugh at the coronation. During the ceremony, when she has to rise at one point, his sisters accidentally drop the train and because it's so heavy, Josephine almost tumbles over backwards, almost humiliating herself, but she does manage to regain her balance. Once Napoleon and Josephine are named Emperor and Empress of France, it's pretty damn clear that Josephine just isn't going to have children. She's getting up there in years. She's 41. 41 year olds in 1804 France just don't give birth to healthy babies. Josephine pushes that aside. She works on putting on a great public face as empress. She does a lot of ceremonial stuff, but behind the scenes, the relationship with Napoleon continues to go downhill. The two are physically getting distant thanks to his habit on waging war with other European countries and being off fighting. And then in 1807, one of Napoleon's mistresses has a son, which shows that Napoleon is capable of having children. Whatever is preventing Napoleon and Josephine from having offspring, it probably isn't Napoleon. Then he meets Polish noblewoman Maria Valeska during his Polish campaigns, and he enters into a really serious relationship with Marie. This is the first time in Napoleon's affairs where the relationship isn't just physical. There's something emotional and mental there, and that seriously freaks out Josephine. And then, as if it couldn't get worse, in May 1807, Napoleon's official heir and Josephine's grandson, Napoleon Charles, unexpectedly dies in the Netherlands. Not only has Josephine lost her first grandchild, Napoleon suddenly doesn't have an heir to the empire. This is kind of a death knell in the Napoleon and Josephine relationship, made even worse because Napoleon feels like Josephine spends too much time mourning her grandson. By the end of 1807, Napoleon is pretty seriously looking for a new wife among various European princesses. Top of his list is Tsar Alexander I's 14-year-old sister, but then Napoleon goes to war with Russia, so that's out the window, so he keeps looking around for possible European princesses he could marry. However, 
While Napoleon is desperate to get a new wife, he doesn't actually want to be the one to ask Josephine for the divorce because, as it turns out, Napoleon is kind of a coward. So Josephine gets to spend a bunch of fun time in limbo, knowing that her husband no longer wants to be with her, but also knowing that he's not going to be the one to ask to leave her. The next year, in 1808, her daughter Hortense has a new kid, Louis Napoleon, who, once again, is able to be Napoleon's heir. But there is some fuzziness over Louis Napoleon's paternity, which, as always, I will discuss in a future study guide. This does ease some of the tension between Josephine and Napoleon, but the birth of the grandson can only do so much. By the fall of 1809, the relationship between Josephine and Napoleon is over. At the end of November 1809, he announces at dinner that he is going to seek a divorce between himself and Josephine. The divorce is publicly announced in 1809. Both Josephine and Napoleon are pretty heartbroken about their separation. When they discuss the fact that they're getting divorced in private, Napoleon keeps like breaking down into tears and sobbing about how sad he is that he has to leave her, but how he has to do it for the good of France. He also tells Josephine in a very Napoleon-esque move that he still wants to be her friend and hang out, and maybe they could keep having sex on the side after he gets remarried. And Josephine is like, oh wow, that's so sweet. Thanks, but aggressively, no thanks, bucko. Napoleon is sweet enough to allow her to keep the title of empress after the divorce goes through. Once the two are officially divorced, Josephine is allowed to keep the Chateau de Malmaison that Napoleon had bought her, and she moves there. Napoleon ends up marrying Marie Louise of Austria in April 1810, and he's like, oh my gosh, you guys could both be like BFFs. And Josephine is like, yeah, no, I'm not going to become friends with your second wife, who is some teenage princess out of Austria. And Marie Louise also doesn't exactly want to be Josephine's friend, mostly because Napoleon has this bad habit of comparing Marie's Louise to Josephine, to Marie's face, and finding Josephine better, which is really a great way to endear yourself to your new wife. But Marie does manage to have a son in 1811, which eases the whole inheritance issue. Once the divorce goes through, Josephine basically spends her time hanging out at her chateau with her children and meeting various grandchildren that got born. After Napoleon abdicates in 1814 and goes to Elba, Josephine is treated pretty well. The Allies allow her to keep her titles, her estates, and her money. She's even invited to meet with Tsar Alexander I of Russia, Napoleon's frenemy, and she agrees to the meeting, and the two hit it off fairly well. In fact, they hit it off so well that in May 1814, Josephine is riding in a carriage with the Tsar of Russia and her beloved daughter Hortense, and she gets sick. She never quite recovers, and she ends up dying on May 29th, 1814, at her chateau, 
at the age of 50. Her last words were Bonaparte Alba, the King of Rome, which was referring to Napoleon. When Napoleon found out about Josephine's death, he was heartbroken and refused to leave his room on Alba. Apparently, he never stopped thinking about her because his last words may have included Josephine, according to some witnesses, which does create a nice parallel. Josephine's legacy outlasted her life. Her grandson became Napoleon III of France, and through her son, Eugene, she is a direct ancestor of the ruling families of Sweden, Denmark, Belgium, Norway, and, Lums and Luxembourg. As always, not too shabby for the daughter of an incompetent plantation owner. So, for those fans of a study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's quickly recap Josephine Bonaparte's life in a way that will attempt to do justice to this fantastic lady. The woman who would one day be Josephine Bonaparte was born in the French colony of Martinique. Her father was a sugar plantation owner who was constantly in debt and basically had to rely on family connections to get ahead. And that's what he did with his daughter, Josephine. Through his sister, Desiree, he got Josephine engaged to a young man named Alexander de Beauharnais. Josephine ended up marrying Alexander when she was 16 years old, and it was not exactly the happiest of relationships, mostly because Alexander was sleeping with a married woman on the side. However, Josephine and Alexander did have two children, Eugene and Hortense, and through moving to Paris to be with Alexander, Josephine did finally get a formal education. When the French Revolution broke out, Alexander did do fairly well in the brand new revolutionary government. He became famous for bringing the king back to Paris and ended up becoming a general. However, his military career ended up not going so great. Alexander became accused of being counter-revolutionary and was arrested. Luckily for Josephine, by this point, she and her husband were divorced because he was such an awful man, but because she had been married to a counter-revolutionary at one point, she also was thrown in prison. However, unlike her husband, Josephine did not get her head cut off thanks to the intervention of the lover of one of her friends, Teresa Talian. Once she was out of prison, Josephine quickly became a fixture of post-revolutionary Parisian social life and started sleeping with a variety of revolutionary generals. It was through one of these generals, Paul Barat, that she got introduced to a young Napoleon Bonaparte. For Napoleon, it was love at first sight. For Josephine, it wasn't quite the same way. But she recognized Napoleon's potential and agreed to marry him in March 1796. The marriage was très scandalous because Josephine was, one, previously married, and two, six years older than Napoleon. Once they were married, Napoleon went off to fight in Italy and later on in Egypt, and Josephine contented herself with having a fun little affair on the side. The relationship between Napoleon and Josephine was more than a little 
tumultuous thanks to both of their habits for having affairs on the side, but they managed to stick together as Napoleon started to pull his way up through the French government through a series of coups. By 1800, thanks to the coup of Brumaire, Napoleon was the consul, aka dictator, of France, and Josephine wasn't going anywhere. To further cement this relationship, Napoleon forced Josephine's daughter, Hortense, to marry his younger brother, Louis, and yeah, no one was thrilled with this marriage, but it did produce a son, which was the one thing that Josephine was not able to give Napoleon, which caused more than a little bit of tension in the relationship. In 1804, Napoleon named himself Emperor of France and gave Josephine the slightly controversial title of Empress in a very elaborate, over-the-top ceremony. As the years progressed, it became more and more clear that Josephine was not going to have a son with Napoleon, and Napoleon began having more and more affairs, and the relationship started to collapse further and further, until in 1809, Napoleon asked Josephine for a divorce so he could go marry some teenage European princess, and Josephine, seeing the writing on the wall and not wanting to end up like Catherine of Aragon, Randolin agreed to the divorce. Post-divorce, Josephine was allowed to keep her titles, money, and estates, and she moved back to her fabulous French chateau. Napoleon ended up marrying a princess of Austria, having a kid with her, and then getting defeated by the larger European alliance. Post-Napoleon's defeat, Josephine got to hang out at her chateau and became BFFs with the Tsar of Russia until she died of a cold in May 1814 at the age of 50. So yeah, I actually really like Josephine Bonaparte. She has a reputation in history for being kind of slutty, but that's kind of fabulous. Like, what's not to love? I think she's one of the few people in Napoleon's life who really, like, stood head to head against him. Yes, he divorced her, but she kind of won the divorce, to be totally honest. The only thing that's not so great about Josephine is so much of her, like, life and privilege was based off of the slave trade, which is never good. We do not stand slavery. Most of my research for this episode came from Evangeline Bruce's work, Napoleon and Joseph, An Improbable Marriage, in Ontario's fantastic Queens of Infamy essay series on Josephine. As always, for a full bibliography and relevant images, you can visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, Email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. Next week, I'm going to be covering Napoleon's big brother, who really lived in Napoleon's shadow, Joseph Bonaparte. And until then, if you want to chat on social media, there's the Twitter at sadgirlstudypod and the Instagram for some fun memes at sadgirlstudy. If you want to financially support the podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides. By joining, you get access to bi-monthly tangent casts where twice a month 
I talk about people, places, or things that didn't quite fit in to the larger study guides. And as always, the best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. And please let me know how I'm doing. Read or review, or else I'll be sad. Thanks.